Welcome to the Sports Epreneur Podcast, the podcast where sports and entrepreneurship collide. This is a Sports Epreneur Podcast collaboration with Coach Alan Major. We present Clutch Timeout, Championship Culture, and Leadership Discussions with Alan Major. Sportsypreneur is a content platform, a collaborative team, and a marketing brand that is all about showcasing leaders and difference makers in and around the world of sports. While we create our own content, we also create content with you. This includes collaborative content and exclusive content for your brand. Think podcasts, blogs, social media, and overall content strategy. Our sports content marketing team is specifically niche for those in the sports industry. That includes sports businesses, athletes, managers, coaches, trainers, entrepreneurs, and business leaders in the sports market. The bottom line is we want to help with your sports-related brand, your content marketing, and your story. Connect with us on Instagram at sportsepreneur or find us online at sportsepreneur.com. Sportsepreneur, the content platform where sports and entrepreneurship collide. In the Clutch Timeout podcast series, college basketball coach Alan Major talks to elite basketball leaders about stories from the hardwood, leadership lessons, and life. Subscribe to the Sports Epreneur podcast so you can get the latest episodes from Coach Major. You can connect with us on Instagram at sportsepreneur or at sportsepreneur.com. We now welcome Coach Alan Major and the Clutch Timeout podcast series, a Sports Epreneur collaboration. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back or welcome to, if it's your first time, to the uh, Clutch Timeout podcast. This is Alan Major, and I want to thank Kaz Source Group out of Charlotte once again, Eric Kasimov, John P. Prior, and their guys for allowing me to be a part of this. This is part two of a three-part series, or the second of your three Clutch Timeouts. So the purpose of what we've been trying to do is talk about some culture and leadership, both concepts, but also stories of how they apply in the coaching world. And this has been great for me. It's been an awesome experience. Uh, hopefully you all enjoyed Thad Mata in the first clutch timeout. And that gave you a, a peek of what it's like to be on the inside of a huddle with these guys. So I want to introduce our second clutch timeout guest. Uh, and I just realized that Donald and me, it's a 30 year friendship. I think that we're pushing now and we go back a long way. I was a manager at Purdue when he was a graduate assistant. His name is Steve Lavin, and he is currently a college basketball analyst with Fox and CBS. Just a little bit about Steve before we get going, because he's a humble guy. He'll be the last to bring all these accolades up. I was head coach at UCLA and St. John's, two of the most storied programs in college basketball. Went to four Sweet 16s in the Elite Eight in seven years at UCLA, nine 21 seasons. 17 NBA players in his career at St. John's in a five-year stretch, went to the postseason four times, two NCAA tournaments, and two NITs when almost a reawakening of the St. John's program before he left and uh, joined back into the TV world. And so did a stretch with ESPN before going back to coaching at St. John's and now is back with television with uh, Fox Sports and CBS Turner. So, Lav, welcome, my brother. Great to be with you, Alan. And I think it's 32 years since I first met you. 1988, that 88-89 season, my first year there. And I think I met you even the year prior. It might have been the 87-88 season with uh, Todd Mitchell, Troy Lewis, Everett Stevens and company. That's when Um, you, yes, you were visiting. That's when you did between Purdue and Indiana. And you were in observation mode before Coach Katie offered you the GA job. Exactly. So I guess it's 32, 33 years. Yeah. Uh, it's a long, a long arc. 
and a lot of water under the bridge. But, um, <laughs> I've always enjoyed our friendship and uh, this is another example of an opportunity together to do something special today. So I appreciate you having me on the show. Oh, no, man, this is great. I know we've been talking about this and what's funny, speaking of our friendship, I'm going to hit the rewind button for both of us because this story is almost up to its 30-year anniversary. Matter of fact, this late June will be the 30th year anniversary of this story. So we worked four straight weeks of overnight camp at Purdue in the summer of 1990. And you remember that what that was like. Overnight camp started on Sunday, ended on Friday. So it was just an absolute grind. You get one day off and then back at it again. So we do that for four straight weeks. And then we jump into your car. You pick me up at 12 midnight the day after camp ended. It's a Saturday at the end of June. And Pontiac we, Grand Am, Bruce Weber. Pontiac Weber's. Grand Am, the gold bomb. Exactly. I, yeah. I bought it from Bruce Weber, supposedly at a blue book value, but uh, we'll get into that story later. <laughs> right. So we start driving, and this was the first summer that I was going to go out to California and spend about eight weeks working various camps. So we drive on and off, changing shifts, and we just go as hard as we can. And I remember waking up and we're going through the desert and my head is against the window. We're going really, really fast. Like, and I don't know how fast because I wasn't awake enough to look over and look at the speedometer, but the things are like mountains and stuff are going by really, really fast. So I wake up and I smell smoke and I'm a little nervous because I'm like, this is either the car or cigar. God, please let it be a cigar. So I rouse myself, I kind of sit up in my seat, and I look over, and you got a hat on backwards, no shirt, you got a cigar that is like a Three Stooges, Molary and Curly, like almost a foot long, it looked like, cigar, just ridiculous length. And you're puffing away at this thing, we are easily in triple digits, speed-wise, and you're pumping your fist, yelling, Vegas, baby, Vegas. And that's what I knew. <laughs> that's what I knew. We were in the fourth quarter of the trip. Like, we were in the home stretch. Then the next thing I know, I hear a police siren. So now it's like, okay, you got two guys here speeding through the desert, a car packed with bags. So you can tell that story is just not going to be good. But miraculously, the guy gave us a warning, I remember. But the excitement that you had of pumping your fist... Yelling Vegas, baby, Vegas was unbelievable. I think it was at sunrise. I think the sun was, was just coming up. If I'm not mistaken, I think we could see the Vegas lights in a distance, yes. which like created six, a little motivation for us. It was. It was like six in the morning. And I bring that up because before we even started working camps, you encouraged me to take a leap. And if I've never thanked you for this, I'm going to thank you now because I was nervous. I had always just worked Purdue camps and then gone back to India in the summer. And you encouraged me that summer to take a leap and come with you and spend the summer out West. And, and we did that. Ironically, that same summer, I meet Mike Dunlap at your summer camp. And that ended up being my first coaching job when Mike Dunlap was at Cal Lutzman. And that's how this crazy thing that we love works. So I had to start off with that story, man, because it's 30 years old, but it, it feels like yesterday. Yeah, that's our version of uh, Easy Rider instead of uh, <laughs> Peter Fonda. It was you and I, basketball junkies, uh, going camp to camp and trying to work our hustle so we could pay some bills as well. Because in those days, obviously, in coaching, 
the entry level positions, you weren't paid much. You were doing it for the love exactly. of the game. So that was a, a memorable road trip, uh, without a doubt. <laughs> Our version of, yeah, Easy Rider or Butch Casting the Sundance Kid or Kiro Act you know, no on doubt. the road. Hope yeah. Crosby on the yeah. road again. But, uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, it's amazing. Was... The people you meet and the experiences, because as we know, basketball, that six degrees of separation throughout the world. But uh, so often you look back and it's clinics and camps or on the road recruiting. Back in the day, there even was the ability to scout upcoming opponents. So you'd be on the road, you'd meet assistant coaches and uh, develop relationships and oftentimes friendships. Uh, that lasts a lifetime and exactly. uh, even intersect at points and you end up working together or a door is open because similar to you in meeting Coach Dunlap at our family's basketball camps, it was a result of visiting Purdue and Indiana and UNLV and Duke and attending clinics mm-hmm. and camps that ultimately played a big part in getting hired at Purdue 30 right. years ago as an assistant coach. So, um, with young coaches coming up, we always encourage them, nudge them to get out if you're interested in the game and seek learning and stay interested. And along the way, in a natural manner, in an authentic manner, you meet people and uh, they're going to see if you're eager and no earnest and add value and have the goods, so to speak. And that'll take care of itself in terms of the jobs and doors opening and a career being launched. But really, it was about love of the game and being interested in the game and having aspirations and goals and then these other things happen and, and here we are doing this today 30 something years later yeah unreal man so we're going to get into some culture and leadership stuff as we move forward but this is something because it's so fresh in our game right now i thought maybe we could at least chip away at this one just to start off give a little brief Kind of as you, you're sitting back and looking at it now, especially from the TV side, but obviously haven't been in coaching. Our game is in a different place right now. And we were just talking about this the other day, believe it or not. But from your standpoint of looking at the current state of college basketball, from a G League perspective now, as you get top guys trickling into that, maybe the NCA's take and how that's affected that. We had a conversation the other day and we were, were just chatting and this actually came across our phones, ironically. So with everyone out there listening, just give them a little taste of your outlook on just the state of our game as right now. All, all these entities are kind of coming together, NCAA, G League, NCAA, how it affects recruiting, all that. Yeah, I think to start on the positive, the game still is in good shape, but we're in the midst on a small scale of having a revolution. Mm -hmm. And that can be a good thing because people care and people are putting their heads together from the NCAA, the National Association of Basketball Coaches, USA Basketball, Mm -hmm. and coming up with the necessary tweaks to the amateur model in college athletics overall, but also specific to basketball, ensuring that we adjust and adapt because for so many years we didn't. And uh, now we're playing catch up at an accelerated pace. Great and point. Making, yeah, and making sure that we protect what's good about the game, but also make the adjustments so that we can continue to be viable and attractive to the best student athletes that play this game and uh, the best student athletes in all sports on men's and women's side. 
Yes. And as you know, if you don't evolve, if there's not evolution, then eventually you have a revolution. That's not just in our country and its history, but throughout the world. So sometimes revolution has a, a negative connotation, and I'm not putting our challenges up there with civil rights by any means or, or you know, breaking from England. But there's no doubt that if we're going to protect this game and move forward, we have to make adjustments. And that's what's happening right now with the yeah. name, likeness, branding, and allowing student-athletes to create revenue streams because a big issue here is that the NCAA, through football and basketball, are you know able to make millions of dollars. And yet so yeah. often, the student-athletes that are performing on the basketball court or the gridiron football field from a socioeconomic standpoint are not in good shape. And so that large gap has created issues And so here we are trying to make those adjustments so we can continue to enjoy the game and attract top athletes in all sports to see that college is still a viable, wonderful opportunity and working out some of the rules based on what the NBA is doing and the Players Association is involved on that side specific to basketball and going straight out of high school or the age factor and one or two years in college before you can play in the NBA I think those things are going to be tweaked some. But the big picture for me, I think what's most important is continuing that spirit of inclusiveness and the opportunity for an education and not narrowing down the field where college athletics becomes less attractive to young people and to prospective student-athletes. Yeah, I agree with you. We kind of draw some common threads in this podcast between the sports and obviously the basketball world and the business world. And as we shared the other day, I think this is a great lesson for someone that's in a business, whether you're CEO, exec, or whatever, how important it is to evolve. Because how you said, lack of evolution eventually leads to a revolution. And I think in the business world, even you can have two choices. You know, you're either visionary or you're reactionary. Mm-hmm. And I think because of maybe the powers that be, at least from an NCAA's perspective, they've been more reactionary as opposed to being visionary. And so that's what's led to the cause of a lot of these things being put in almost retroactively as opposed to being put in up front. No Uh, doubt. And there will be players, independent athletes, uh, independent of the tweaks and the modifications, the adjustments that are being made, there'll still be some that will go straight to playing professionally, uh, whether it's overseas, the D-League, uh, the NBA. But we just want to make sure that college athletics is attractive enough so that we can still have the Magic Johnsons or the Larry Birds, uh, the Jason Kids, or Carmelo Anthony's, Purvis Ellison, if you go back. Uh, those were all players, just to name a few, who really... Yeah influenced their respective universities and basketball programs, their athletic programs in a very positive way. Magic and Bird, you could build the case, uh, elevated college athletics uh, to an entire different level of popularity worldwide because of that change of game between Indiana State and Michigan State. And then within a year, they elevated the NBA. So it it shows how important talent and uh, young people that have gifts. And that's why we go to a show Uh, On Broadway in New York, Uh, we want to be entertained and see the best, uh, whether it's a dancer, a musician, a vocalist, and certain athletes command just a a following, an audience. And uh, that's part of 
when we look back on the history of college athletics, there were remarkable student athletes. And we don't want to, again, narrow down the attractiveness. And so I think inclusiveness and opening that lens, and it starts with the leadership. And as you know, specific to basketball, there's no one better than Dan Gavitt, whose father, Dave Gavitt, was a coach at Providence and was the founder of the Big East Conference, also spent time as a broadcaster and rest in peace. But his reach, you talk about visionary. And so his son, his son, Dan Gavitt, is in charge of college basketball. And that, for me, builds confidence in knowing that we have the right leadership. Not that there aren't a lot of challenges ahead of us, but they're going to evolve at the appropriate pace and make dramatic changes when necessary, as we've seen recently with these headlines. And also, in a more gradual way, continue to stay up to speed with what we need to do to deliver to make the experience for student-athletes optimal, to make it uh, as good as it can be and really deliver on the promise of what higher education is about and what college athletics in its ideal form should be about. And yes, there's problems, but let's make good on that promise at every university and college in terms of opportunity, in terms of education, and really putting young people on a positive trajectory for life beyond sport and beyond athletics. And uh, that is what the NCAA is now looking at. And thanks to this revolution of sorts that's happened, uh, we're going to get to a better place. Yeah, absolutely. It's really going to be interesting the next couple of years. I mean, I think there's going to be some really unique and game-changing stuff on the horizon. So the game is definitely in a spot right now where there's a lot of eyes on it. So going to be really interesting to see how things progress. The old phrase that Alan, those adages that, that have been around for so long, the reason those adages as one would say necessity is the mother of invention, right? That uh, yeah. out, of, out of necessity, we have to think creatively, use ingenuity, use resourcefulness. And we're seeing how the coronavirus has done that as horrifying of an experience as this coronavirus has been, coronavirus and the, and the pandemic worldwide. There are aspects that, while it's sobering, we're seeing elements that are inspiring. No doubt. The way, the way something like this can galvanize countries and the world and uh, the human spirit. We saw that 9-11, both sobering in terms of the tragedy, uh, the Mm -hmm. loss of first responders and all those innocent victims, but also we were inspired at the same time with all the courage and the way in which the country rallied around New York and the way New York responded itself in terms of picking itself up and uh, dusting itself off and, and charging forward. So I think, again, those are larger and not putting the NCAA and their challenges in the same category as uh, 9-11 of the coronavirus. But on a micro level, mm-hmm. on a smaller level, we do come out of tough situations in a better place. Uh, even if it's forced or out of necessity, we have to do it. But change can be good. Coach Wooden, one of his favorite phrases was, change for the sake of change is not the answer. Uh, But there's no progress without change. And then understanding the distinction between the two. Uh, Don't change for the sake of change, but be sure to evolve and to grow. And we have to change if we're going to make progress. And I think that's apropos to the situation right now, both with coronavirus, with college athletics, a number of fronts. Education overall right now is going through what will be a revolution, not only because of coronavirus, even before the coronavirus with distance learning and 
and other factors that were in play with technology and the information age. So things are moving at a faster clip than ever before. And so when we talk about leadership and visionaries being nimble and Mm -hmm. being creative and using ingenuity, all those important traits or qualities that go into sport and achieving and being successful as a team also go into the country and the world at large. Yeah, absolutely. Society's in a gun-to-head moment right now. And you you always have two choices to how you handle those. And we're all going to be better on the other side of this thing, whatever the other side of that looks like. But Winston Churchill said it best, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste. So mm-hmm. give us a little bit, obviously, I'm very familiar with it from knowing your family for so long, but kind of put this question in the perspective of just a, a little bit about your background and then kind of tie it into you know, how you met basketball. And I know just knowing your family and, and I'm very familiar, but for people listening may not have an idea. So uh, just give us kind of a brief breakdown of that and then we'll kind of shift into some other leadership and culture nuggets? Yeah, I grew up in Northern California. I was born in San Francisco and grew up just north in Marin County and went to Sir Francis Drake High School, which was one of the basketball powerhouses in Northern California. And uh, my high school coach was Pete Hayward. And he was influenced, didn't play basketball at Cal Berkeley, but he attended uh, Cal Berkeley, got his education there uh, when Pete Newell was coaching and then athletic director. And so Coach Newell had a big influence on his basketball philosophy. And my father played for both Pete Newell at the University of San Francisco for two years. And then Pete Newell went on to Michigan State, later came back to Cal Berkeley before retiring, a Hall of Fame career that Coach Newell had. But my father played for Pete Newell as well at the University of San Francisco. So he played for two Hall of Fame coaches. My father chose to pursue education and writing. He authored 17 books on writing and composition. Wow. And taught at every level, high school at Sir Francis Drake High School, Dominican College, Powell Berkeley, San Francisco State, also Reardon High School in San Francisco. And he was co-founder, co-director of the Bay Area Writing Program, B-A-W-P, BOP was its name. And uh, they started it in the early 70s. And it's now a program that throughout the country has uh, over 250 writing centers on campuses throughout the country. Wow. But the inaugural first year and uh, the first writing program was at Cal Berkeley. And so uh, my father, while he was a great basketball player, was really interested in higher education. He was an English philosophy, literature, poetry teacher, and uh, had a love of language and uh, etymology, a wordsmith but also had a love of cinema and music and the arts. And so we were fortunate. Six children raised on an educator's income, which wasn't Mm -hmm. much in those days. And uh, my mother raised six children and then went back to school and finished her degree at Dominican College in art history. And then she worked in corporate America for 25 years in human resources with Wells Fargo and Southern Pacific and Equitable and these other companies in San Francisco. And that was really a powerful example because from her era, The Greatest Generation, uh, Tom Brokaw has that book, The Greatest Generation, where he writes so poignantly about that generation and how they were shaped by the Depression and Mm -hmm. World War II. And their sensibilities were shaped by hardship and uh, their values the virtues that kind of were enduring 
are what they passed on and really their legacy or footprint that they've left behind is what we remember most in terms of that generation. And so I was really fortunate to have amazing teachers in the home. They were married 60 years. They were married. They had a timeout. I call it a halftime. <laughs> At 25 years for three months, they broke up. Then thankfully, my mother came back. And then they went on another run for 35 years for 60 total. Wow. And that comeback was as powerful as any example they could have set the power of healing and mm-hmm. being stronger at that broken place, at the mended place, was such a profound kind of example and lesson for their children to see. And that yeah. means a lot of give and take and sacrifice and being willing to work at it. And they were 60 years when my father passed in 2013 on February 10th. So great parents. And I think my father's love of teaching, even though his was literature, poetry, philosophy, his interest in the arts, really a Renaissance man in many ways, set a powerful example for me. And it's probably what led to me wanting to teach. But instead of literature and poetry and philosophy, I moved towards basketball. Yeah. Not that I don't have an appreciation for all those other subjects, especially the older I get. I'm so glad that they introduced us to foreign cinema. They were taking us to the art houses and then cinemas here in San Francisco, or even on the campuses that my father taught at. And we'd get to see Fellini films, Cocteau and Truffaut films, the Marx Brothers, Charlie Chaplin, all the old musical and gangster films. And so they exposed us to not just art, but music. I remember as a 14-year-old going to see Bobby Short at the Fairmont Hotel, and as good as it gets on the piano, he was gifted. But uh, those were unique experiences, and my dad probably knew someone that allowed me to sneak in because I think you're supposed to be of age (laughs) when you're watching Bobby Short on a midnight session. But so grateful for that. And I I think that's what led to the interest. I played at San Francisco State for two years. Then my coach left Chapman University. And so I followed him down to Chapman, was Chapman College back then, now Chapman University. Finished up my career there. And while I was in school, I started writing letters. Bobby Knight, Mike Krzyzewski, Gene Cady, Jerry Tarkini, and Tim Gergovich at UNLV, among other coaches that weren't as well-known. Bud Preston, yeah. a junior college coach at Menlo, Hank Egan at San Diego, Jim Brandenburg at San Diego State, and some high school coaches, Don Johnson at Cypress Junior College. And uh, just started to observe, take notes, and watch masters at work. And then went back and started working summer camps. Uh, also visited those respective coaches and watched them at work. And fortunately... As we talked about earlier, Coach Katie called me in the summer of 88 in August at the end of that summer. And Kevin Stallings, his assistant, had moved on to Kansas as an assistant for Roy Williams. And that opened up an opportunity for me to join the Boilermaker staff as a graduate assistant. And uh, that's when we started rolling together. Oh, man. You mentioned something that because my mom and dad were together 44 years before he passed away. And when you put the combination of what they give you together, how amazing it is, like, yeah, you mentioned your mom had the kind of corporate America human resources side, which you really have to appreciate the human side of that phrase if you're going to be in human resources, because it's about the human first, then the resources. But right. then Cap and having his mix of basketball and literature and appreciation for things outside the game, how healthy that is. I think I look at that now, you know, when that's a powerful combination when you put those two things together that they gave you. That's really awesome, man. 
Yeah. What's interesting too is my father was raised by five women. So he was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts. They moved to New York for a short time. And then his mother and the mother's two sisters, my father's aunts, and the grandmother and the great-grandmother all moved to San Francisco. So they were early trailblazers, kind of early Thelma and Louise in terms of their spirit. (laughs) And uh, the Go West was in their blood. And they came out to San Francisco in the early 30s, 1930s. And they raised my father. And they're the ones, those five women, that lived in an apartment above a beauty salon that they ran. And they're the ones that really encouraged my dad to read. They were the ones putting the classics and the books in front of him. And also the Mm -hmm. Jesuits. He went to Catholic schools, uh, St. Ignatius High School and the University of San Francisco. So I think they had a big influence on him as well. But those women had a great positive effect on his life. And they're the ones, again, put the books in front of him, an appreciation for music, listening to the radio at that time, uh, mystery theater and whatnot, vaudeville type stuff. And then also made sure that he was at the playground because back then they had playground directors. And so the hours when he wasn't in school or he wasn't at home with them reading, he was playing basketball. And I think, so those women really shaped his sensibilities and also introduced him yeah. to the possibilities through the arts and yeah. through sport. And as a result, that's what led to the trajectory of his entire life. Uh, his passion, his purpose was ideas and and writing and reading and then the yeah. love of basketball. And then that in turn had an influence on his children because uh, all four of the boys played basketball. And then we had the basketball camps, which was a family camp, as you know, Northern California that you worked. And interestingly, Sad yeah. Mata worked that camp. Yeah. Him, him and yes, Tate came out. Yep. And yes, uh, he did. Mike Boonholzer worked that camp. Oh, um, man. Himself, Matt Painter, a lot yeah. of Brandy know, young Gunn from the Lakers. That's right. A lot of young aspiring coaches made that trek to Anglin up in the wine country. Yeah. And it's fun to think back. We should do a reunion camp some year and try and get everyone back up there in, uh, oh, for sure. in the Napa Valley for at least one more run at uh, Groff Hall. In the, uh, yeah, that's right. Hopefully they're serving meat by now instead of the vegan yeah, menu. Not likely, but maybe some air conditioning is possible in the dorms. <laughs> it's funny, the, the last thing on Cap before we move on, Lab, is that probably taught him the art that is kind of a lost art now in our day and age. But that summer I went out and stayed with you guys. I spent a lot of time at the house and helping him run around with the camp stuff. But he was a master conversationalist. Mm -hmm. And I think had he been raised by five men versus five women, I think that may not have been the case. Mm -hmm. And so that value or that, for lack of a better phrase, that characteristic that they gave him Probably that's something he didn't appreciate until he got older, but his ability to connect with anybody, whether it was seven-year-old kid at camp or an 88-year-old grandmother that's coming to camp to help drop their kid off you know, with the parents, to everybody in between. He was a master conversationalist, which I think that was probably another gift that he got from being raised by five women as well. I agree. He was a great, great listener, a good conversationalist. And also compassionate. There's authentic kind of compassion and the ability to not just listen, but to really put himself in the shoes of someone else, as you mentioned, a 
Yeah. A little scrambler, a little shaver. All leadership values too, by the way. All those things. Oh, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that was, and years later he, he passed in 2013, but I still get emails and people with social media that if I make a post, a picture of my father at some point in his life, inevitably the students start hitting me with a text or email or a response to it because he had that gift for teaching and working mm-hmm. with young people and the phrase they use now, meeting them where they are, uh, because he worked with first-rate intellectuals when at Cal Berkeley, but he also taught one night a week at San Quentin with yeah. the prisoners. And wow. Same subject, poetry and literature, trying to turn them on to Graham Greene or Walker Percy or to Kipling's If. But they were at San Quentin at that point, maximum security. It's no longer that case, but he'd bring me on Saturdays in there for breakfast and I'd get to go up in the guard tower and meet the guards. We see all the machine guns there high above the courtyard of San Quentin and um, into the cafeteria. uh, He'd be introducing me to the chefs that were prisoners that had been on good behavior and he really enjoyed teaching at San Quentin. And to me, it goes back to compassion and yes. passion for teaching, a passion for a subject matter. But ultimately, it was about working with people and trying to nudge them or get them closer to their full potential or the expression of their potential. And we haven't even hit on my mother, who was a remarkable teacher. Art history was her subject. Edward Hopper is who she kind of specialized in as an artist because she loved the light in his paintings, kind of his gift for working Mm. with the shadows and the sunlight. And she grew up in San Francisco, which is kind of similar to Paris in terms of the light and the beauty. It's awesome. But she was steady and brilliant, but was fine with not being in the spotlight where my father thrived uh, being in the spotlight. He was just so charismatic and it came to him naturally. But my mother was just as exceptional as a teacher. Yeah. And uh, as the years go by, we get even more appreciation. We lost her in 2018 on January 25th. Mm-hmm. And your life's altered forever. Absolutely. When you lose one parent. But the second one, in my experience, hit me harder. Because yeah. in a sense, you're suddenly orphaned. You know, I agree first, with you. When, the, when you lose the first one, there's still someone yeah. else. And you put all the energies towards the surviving parent which obviously is natural. When you lose the second, it, it hits you in a, in a more profound way. Yeah, 100% agree. I really do. I'm going to move on to, to another teacher and another kind of father figure that I know had a massive impact on your career. Just give a couple of nuggets on what John Wooden taught you about your culture, especially in leadership, just during your time at UCLA. And I know... When you took over there, one thing for those listening, I forgot to mention, Steve was a, an assistant on the 1995 UCLA National Championship team when Jim Herrick was coaching and a few years before he would go ahead, go on to take over. So obviously we're talking about a guy that is oozing success and in terms of what leadership and culture can really look like, both in a practical basketball setting, but if you're in a different walk of life out there, I know there's going to be some things that you pull from this that Lav will be able to to share with you, but give a dose of what it was like just that, especially early on, I know he probably gave you a little bit more leeway in your further years at UCLA. Not that you, I know you always leaned on him, 
but especially in that first couple of years as you become a head coach for the first time. Yeah, what's well, so interesting that Purdue plays a part here because Coach Wooden was a three-time All-American, as you know, yeah. at Purdue with the Boilermakers from 1928 to 1932. Those were the years he attended Purdue and played for Piggy Lambert, a legendary coach in Big Ten history and Purdue history. And when Coach Wooden would visit Purdue, because naturally he'd be honored from time to time, yeah. that's when I first had the opportunity to spend time with him. And it ends up playing a part in the trek to UCLA along with some other factors and definitely was a key in eventually being chosen as the head coach at UCLA. It goes back to the Boilermaker ties. And so when he would come to West Lafayette to visit, I was a graduate assistant at the time. As you know, you were with the program as well. Mm -hmm. And I was the one responsible for picking him up from his hotel, getting him to the airport and back, making sure that he got over to Mackey Arena to watch practice, uh, you know, over to bookstores to do autograph signing sessions where he'd meet fans that naturally were lining up into the cornfields with the opportunity, <laughs> the opportunity to meet Coach Wooden. So what was nice is we kept in touch and I met Mark Gottfried, who was an assistant on the staff at a summer camp in California during mm-hmm. that same period. And then working with Coach Katie's USA teams, I think the Pan Am, yes. maybe the World the Games, World yeah. University Games. So when working with Coach Katie's staff during the USA basketball up in Colorado Springs and then back at Mackey Arena as they prepared to go overseas for competition, some of the UCLA players were trying out for those teams. Uh, Tracy Murray, Trevor Wilson, to name a few. And that led to me meeting Coach Herrick. Mm-hmm. And so between meeting Coach Godfrey, meeting Coach Herrick, and then John Wooden, the Boilermaker tie, uh, that wow. ends up leading to coming to UCLA. And then I spent five years as an assistant, as you mentioned, fortunate to be on staff when we win the national title in 95 in Seattle. Coach Herrick is dismissed in 1996 in the fall before the start of the season. And I mm-hmm. begin as an interim coach. But by February, we were in first place in conference play, and they lifted that interim tag. But one of the real keys there was they call off the national search. And and naturally, Chuck Young, who was the president of UCLA for decades, he was a young president towards the end of John Wooden's dominant run, 10 championships in 12 years, from 1963 Mm -hmm. to 75, 10 out of 12 championships, seven consecutive NCAA championships, uh, five undefeated seasons, and 88 straight wins at one point, the longest streak in college basketball history. So Jim Milhorn was the associate athletic director at UCLA at the time, and he had played for John Wooden before the championship years. And Pete Blackman, who played for Coach Wooden at UCLA right before the championship years, was our vice chancellor. And Pete Dallas uh, had been a football manager at UCLA during John Wooden's coaching tenure. And so really, again, coming back to the Boilermaker tie and to Coach Wooden, when they do that national search, ultimately call it off, it was because of having John Wooden as an advocate and uh, our familiarity with each other and someone that I had leaned on and that I'd known for years going back to my assistant coaching years. And so it's not something I ever shared with the press, wasn't appropriate. 
But since you're asking, because a lot of people were like, how did Steve Lavin get that job at 32 years old? <laughs> right. Exactly. Never have you been a head coach before, 11 championship banners over your head, and uh, not yeah. having played for a Mike Krzyzewski or a, yeah. a legendary coach like Roy Williams or Bobby Knight. But instead, I was a Division II player at San Francisco State and, and Chapman College. So I count my blessings there just to have John Wooden as an advocate. And then there are so many elements in terms of lessons. He was an English teacher, loved words, was a wordsmith, uh, very similar to my dad, different generations, Mm -hmm. probably 30 years older. Very similar though. Yeah. yeah. And like Coach Wooden, my dad coached or taught in high school and Coach Wooden began his career in Dayton High School in Kentucky Mm -hmm. and then later South Bend Central High School in Indiana. He also served for the country uh, in the Navy and then he was at Indiana State when they were a Division II program, before they were Division yep. One. Then he yep. comes to UCLA, 27 years at UCLA. His first 15 uh, doesn't have success, but he was learning. And then at 53 years old, he wins his first championship. And he used to like to say, with a twinkle in those blue eyes, I was a slow learner. But once I figured it out, I was pretty good. <laughs> and, uh, the ultimate understated, you know, truth. they all say you figured it out. So from 53 to 65, he retires because he was from that greatest generation that you have a career and then you retire at 65. Now, he was in good health. He lived to 99, mm-hmm. born in 1910, and he passed away just short of his 100th birthday in 2010. And yeah. so his perspective, the prism or the lens that he looked at the world through was fascinating. He's 99 years old. Last time I visited to him on White Oak Boulevard in Encino, and he had an apartment there for decades. Mm-hmm. He was doing a deep dive on all world religions. He happened to be a Christian, but he had all these books spread out with notes and highlighter pens. He's got that remarkable penmanship, uh, handwriting. Yeah. yeah. And because there were so many books in his den and out in the living room on the table there, the dining room table. And I eventually asked him, coach, you know, what you got going here? You know, a lot of books <laughs> spread out. And uh, just, you know, kind of matter of factly, well, you know, I've actually been studying up on world religions. That book you know, over there, that's on Hinduism. And this one's on Judaism. And this one is on Catholicism. And this is on the Mormon faith. So I was like, wow, you talk about someone with that intellectual curiosity. At 99 years old, still an appetite to learn. And as he's moving towards the finish line, a appropriate kind of study, he wanted to learn more. And he was looking for the common ground. Uh, What were the commonalities that all these religions shared? Because he said, it's been the differences in religions that have led to genocide and bloodshed. Yeah, wars. Yeah. Yeah, false civilizations and whatnot. So he was finishing on a high note, looking for what all those four religions shared. And uh, I thought that really speaks to the kind of person he is. There were wonderful quotes. You go to ask a basketball question, as I did, a young assistant, then a young head coach. And somehow he would redirect the question into some larger subject about humanity, weaving in Mother Teresa, <laughs> Gandhi, right, yeah. Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King. Yeah. You're just looking to bust up a 2-3 zone and he ends up on Mother Teresa. Exactly. That was his favorite. (laughs) Mother Teresa was his favorite favorite human being because of her otherness and the caring for the poor and the impoverished. And Lincoln was his favorite American. Yes, he was. Um, Bob Newhart, 
was his favorite comedian, although he loved Abe Lemons, uh, the legendary coach who liked the cigars and used to coach at Texas and was a small Mm -hmm. college coach for years, and they really hit it off. But uh, quoting Churchill, and he paraphrased some of these quotes, but a few of my favorite was, never mistake activity for achievement. Mm-hmm. And the best thing a mother and father can do for their children is to love one another. The power of that example of love will have a more profound effect than anything you could say yeah. um, or do you for a I, child. You and I both learned that one directly, for sure. Right. Yeah, what does love look like? And so be sure, because the little people are watching, and the greatest gift can, can do for your children is to love their mother. And uh, I've kind of tweaked it a little bit there, but because really both sides there, because there's a lot of families, right, that have different dynamics. So really, mm-hmm. the greatest thing you do for your children is to love one another, to have the parents love one another. He had a life without giving is a life not worth living. And I think that might be paraphrased from, you know, Churchill. But so many valuable pearls of wisdom because of his life experience and his perspective and uh, humility, humanity, all these really important ingredients. And, and of course, there's the pyramid of success, which he came up with because he wasn't satisfied uh, having been a high school teacher with the grading system of you know an A, a B, a C, yeah. you know, a, D, a D or an F. Uh, he felt it was about one's potential. And where did they start? And if they were doing the best with their set of circumstances, that's an A. Exactly. And and the peace of mind comes from that, that doing the best you can on a daily basis, that's all you can really do. And the advice he gave me as a young head coach was stay in the moment. Don't look too far ahead. It's natural to have some anxiety being an interim coach because you don't know what your future is. Exactly. And, And he said it's natural to look over your shoulder at what just transpired with the university and your former boss, Coach Herrick. Mm-hmm. He said, but you can't have one foot yesterday and one foot tomorrow if you expect to be successful and deliver for this young group, yeah. basketball players you've inherited. And what they deserve is for you to have both feet today and do the best you can. And that's how we get to a better tomorrow. And there was exactly. no better advice going into that season as an interim coach working under those conditions. And I didn't fully grasp the time how influential he could be indirectly with those different people we talked about earlier, the people acting as the Jim Millhorns, Chuck Young, and Pete Dallas. But uh, that ultimately was the difference. Yeah. You know, the advice that he gave me and then the support and advocating for me behind the scenes, which has led to the seven years once that interim tag was lifted at UCLA. You know what's priceless about everything that we've been talking about here? You go from your parents to Coach Wooden to Coach Katie. And, and again, this podcast is geared for people that have a vibe for culture and leadership and however it applies to whatever they do. But you're talking about connecting with people, teaching, meeting people where they are, having compassion, everything that you've been dropping about in terms of concepts apply to any person that's in the leadership vacuum today. I mean, especially now, the thing that you just said probably applies to anyone that's in a leadership chair is staying in the moment because we are in is in our lifetime for sure. This is as uncharted the water as the waters have been. And to get caught up in yesterday or get caught up in tomorrow, even though every day right now kind of feels like Groundhog Day. We want to kind of have a date circled out there when everything restarts, but we don't. So the greatest thing we can do both for ourselves 
and for everything around us is to stay in the moment. So amazing how all these common threads, and we're going back 50, 60, 70 years between your dad and Coach Wooden and your mom and path of influence, for lack of a better phrase. But pretty incredible how all this stuff is alive and well in terms of translation. Yeah, well, it's interesting. You mentioned the, the kind of common threads, and one of those elements is being interested, staying interested. And those are the two words, actually, it ended up being three words that came from Brent Musburger my second year at ESPN ABC. I got teamed with Brent Musburger, and he ended up being another valuable mentor to lean on because he knew sports television inside and out. And he had the outliers numbers going for him, 10,000 hours plus in that book, yeah. Outliers, that uh, Malcolm Gladwell speaks to. And we were just coming off, I think, like a Michigan State-Michigan game, or it was a game in Michigan because we were at the Detroit Metro Hotel. The Westin Hotel there is in the terminal. So it's an ideal when you're broadcasting place to stay because you get out of bed in the morning and you go right to your terminal. You don't have to worry about the rental car and whatnot. So we're at the Western Hotel after a broadcast, and I asked him, what's one element? I didn't want three or four or five. Yeah. Just cut right to it. Give me the cliff notes on the one aspect that leads to successful and sustained careers in sports television. Mm-hmm. He'd worked every sport with every broadcaster that you can imagine. And he leaned back in his chair. He was drinking a Merlot. Start with a couple Budweiser's. He liked a couple tall boys. Then he transitioned into the Merlot. And he leaned back. He said, just one, huh? And I said, yeah, just one. And he thinks about it, ruminates on it. Stay interested, kid. Stay interested. Wow. So at first, it was kind of like the Mr. Miyagi or a Kung Fu moment. I wasn't really sure. Yeah. That's it? Stay interested? Right. And not only that night and every day since have I come to appreciate the profound wisdom uh, in those two words because the premise is if you're interested everything else will take care of itself you're going to do the work you're going to be prepared you're going to be a better partner and not only interested in your craft or vocation or industry or work but staying interested in relationships Mm -hmm. staying interested in a relationship with your significant other uh, staying interested in your children, staying interested in the neighborhood, in yes. the town, the city, the state, the country, the globe. And yeah. now more than ever, right? It's a situation where we have to be interested and this pandemic makes us even more aware of that heightens or amplifies the importance or significance of being interested. And it's a trait that is as valuable and a lesson that night that I learned in the Weston Hotel the way he was able to boil it down, stay interested. Kid. If I ever do a book, that may be the title or definitely a chapter. To your point, all the people right, that influence us are people that were interested. They took a liking to you. They saw some potential in you. They mm-hmm. you needed a, a hug or an arm around your shoulder or a fire under your ass. They knew and had that feel, that gift that great parents, great teachers, great coaches, great leaders can intuit. And that comes from life experience. I think some come by it more naturally in terms of leadership. Others grow into it. They kind of exactly. grow into it. Yeah. yeah. And that's what that's what Coach Wood was saying. The things that he learned from 
the experience at Dayton High School, South Bend Central High School, Indiana State, being in the service with the Navy, mm-hmm. what he learned at Purdue from Piggy Lambert, mm-hmm. uh, what he learned from his high school coach at Martinsville. You're borrowing his mother and father were the two people he leaned and looked back on in terms of what he learned from them. Their example, mm-hmm. again, had a, a big influence. And, and so if I were to go through the, the different people in my life that uh, had the most positive influence, it was people that were interested in their work, in others, in things around them. You know, they had that purpose or passion uh, yeah. that was in play. That is almost like a humility that triggers this lifelong learning, not just so much about their craft, but they have a lifelong learning about their craft, but also a lifelong learning about other people. Exactly. That's just another form of staying interested. And, you know, like you said, here's John Wooden, days from passing away, he's 99 years old, but yet he still has this hunger of lifelong learning, but it was always triggered by humility. And I think. People that in a leadership position now more than ever, humility, compassion, empathy, stepping outside yourself, building relationships with employees, with your executive team, whatever the case may be. I mean, so much of that, doing it from the ivory chair in the corner office, I think those days are gone. Yes. I think think you got to get out and you got to be a leader now that walks the hallways. No doubt. And that's how we learn and how we reinvent, recalibrate, adapt, adjust, be able to have a plan. But when it's not working and you see it's diminishing returns, it's incumbent on you to pivot and be able to move in another direction. And that's vision. It's instinct. It also needs to be informed by some logic, right? Just like data and science is driving what we're doing in the coronavirus, but also as we go, we're learning because the coronavirus has been such a mystery and it's new. And what you don't know, you don't know until we find out more. And I think coaching and life, for that matter, is similar. We're growing and evolving. And if you don't adjust or adapt to the changing rules from the shot clock to the three-point line, a wide lane, uh, international rules versus our rules in the NBA versus college versus high school, men's and women's, and uh, the way the game is being officiated, having to adjust or adapt to that as well. Adapting within your conference, who's the competition, and size them up, study them, and what's going to allow your team to be as competitive as possible for where you are now. That doesn't mean three years from now. It won't change based on where you are in the conference and how things have changed in terms of the competition. There are so many parallels. That's why team sports in particular are such a great metaphor or is a great metaphor for life. Mm -hmm. And it's those lessons we learn that kind of transcend the sport. And that's uh, really what I think the best teachers, the best coaches, the best parents, the best leaders, they're about helping young people, helping people regardless of their age at getting closer to their full potential. And giving them a compass, giving them the skill set, the toolbox or the tool belt. Uh, yeah. So that when they navigate and they inevitably face hardship, they'll be better prepared to navigate through it and to learn from it and then hopefully pay it back, uh, pass that baton to someone else coming up and do the same yeah. favor that others did for you. Absolutely. No doubt, Matt. Well, hey, I got one more for you. And I actually had one question in mind, but actually I'm, I'm going to kind of scratch that one and 
And um, yeah, we didn't get to Coach Katie yet. We may have to have a whole other session. We don't. Yeah, you, you could do a whole series on him alone. But um, this last one, if you had a piece of advice that you could give to leaders right now in the situation we're in. And again, use the word leader as an umbrella because there's a lot of people that are going to fit under this umbrella, whether it be coaches, business people, people that are in a position where they have to influence others, which that's the kind of the essence of what leadership means is you know, how do you influence other people? And sometimes that's for the good. Other times it's not so much for the good, but leadership is going to happen one way or the other if you have people under your charge. So what would you, to, to kind of cap off our chat here, just because it's going to translate whether it's in the sports world or, or business or whatever, but if you had to give a couple of parting shots to leaders out there, what would you give them, especially now in the context of our society? I think authenticity uh, would have to rank near the top. And I think that's a timeless universal. And for the sake of the limitations of times, there's so many elements that I could delve into, but the way Brent kind of boiled it down with the stay interested kid, mm-hmm. and I would use that same approach. I'd say authenticity, being yourself. Coach Wood used to always say, you know, stay true to thyself when talking to younger coaches that, you know, don't try and be someone else. We yeah. can emulate some of their positive traits, qualities, attributes, characteristics, someone that we look up to and we learn, right? by watching others and observing. But you have to take those different styles of leadership, coaching, teaching, and parenting and find a way to integrate it so it fits you and it's in alignment uh, with your values and your virtues and and your vision, regardless of the leadership position. So I'd say, you know, Brent's stay interested and then tied to that is authenticity. And and with authenticity, it's kind of like listening. An authentic listener, it's not just the eyes, the body language you're interested, but it's also with your mind, right? And the attention span to be able to stay with it in terms of asking the right questions and eliciting the right responses and then listening to those responses. And I'll add the physical part. We know the eyes and ears and the body language that you're showing that you're a compassionate listener, you're an interested listener, the heart is what ties to that compassion. You can put yourself in the shoes of someone else and kind of feel their struggle. Yes. Even if you may not see it as they do, you can't really fully respond in an informed manner until you really put yourself as best as possible as know, best into their shoes and see exactly. the set of circumstances or see their worldview from their shoes. And then eventually you got to make tough decisions, but at least it's a more informed, compassionate, caring kind of decision you're going to make because you've shown the respect for another person. And that gets into humanity and other things we touched on today. Uh, really, really caring. But I think if you try and be someone else, I always draw that parallel. It's like trying to wear someone else's underwear. You're just not going to feel comfortable wearing no someone else's underwear. Uh, so yeah. it has to be you, your heart, your mind, your soul. But I think today, more than ever, in working with young people, it was a powerful experience for me to be a head coach at UCLA at 32 and then be a head coach at St. John's at 50. And, mm-hmm. you know, similar to parents with their first child versus their third, fourth, or in my parents' case, their fifth and sixth child. They're different parents 
because they're growing and they're evolving and they're learning through trial and error, through hardship, through mistakes. And really, when I look back in the arc of my life in terms of what's informed me and my leadership style and my broadcasting style is uh, life experiences and the hardship. Being fired twice informs different sensibilities. Having cancer for a year and having to watch my team at St. John's in 2011-12 from my bed as I recover from cancer, that informs a whole different perspective. And then losing my father in 2013, my mother in 2018. So between cancer, loss of loved ones, being fired from schools that you love and taken from those teams that you're connected to. And yet it's a gift. I wouldn't want it any other way because when you get to the other side of it and you regenerate, you know, you're able to wish the next guy well, uh, he has to take a crack at being a UCLA coach or the St. John's coach and you want him to do well because you know how challenging it is. And there's another gift that reveals itself. Uh, in my case, it was television, uh, the 70s, yeah. the ESPN and Brent, and all the things I learned from the people at ESPN. And then it's now with Fox and CBS and Turner and the new group of friends and colleagues and a different corporate culture. And exactly. so you're learning all along the way and that's the gift, and that's what Coach Wooden meant by just do the best you can on a daily basis and uh, look to add value, and that's all one can really do. And that's the pyramid of success, that's peace of mind, and that's how we are able to bring something that you could be proud of and feel good about. So the magic carpet ride kind of outlook and, and being interested in that next day and the next set of opportunities uh, that reveal themselves instead of living in regret or having a narrow view or focus, uh, feeling sorry for yourself for, oh, you know, woe me. uh, That's not going to do anything for growth or lead to new opportunities that could be stimulating, intoxicating, and invigorating. And that's what Coach Wooden taught us. That's what Gene Cady has taught us. You look at Coach Cady retiring after a 25-year run at Purdue, the reality is he wanted to stay a couple more years and keep coaching. Why wouldn't he? Exactly. Uh, But it was his time. And he ends up going to the Toronto Raptors as an assistant. And then he goes to the Big Ten Network. And then he comes to St. John's and had five years with us, which was a real kick. Now he's retired and joined himself in Myrtle Beach. But I get the sense of Coach Katie, if the right opportunity came along, would jump back in it. And that's that unique kind of love of the game. And so it's back to the theme of, you know, your parents, my parents, uh, our mentors, the people that influenced us. I had the chance to listen to you and Thad on the podcast you guys had. And uh, it's a theme. And so I think really the things we talked about today in terms of leadership moving forward, but being yourself, uh, being authentic and staying interested and, and caring, right? Yeah. Uh, so uh, we could go for another couple hours here. If, uh, oh, easy. Yeah, you know, it's funny. It's almost like the authenticity part triggers everything else. Because I think if you have that, that's naturally going to create a domino effect into listening, into caring, into love, into learning, into humility. You know, it's it almost like how about resilience? How about bounce back and resilience? Right, being able to bounce back and reinvent yourself. Because if you care and you're interested, you're going to want to get back to that learning, growing, adding value, sharing place and to do that you got to be able to bounce back look you can't be licking your wounds feel you gotta hey get back up and reinvent yourself you know yeah what's good what's next what's the next gift that pretty much puts a bow on it right there because i mean that's got to be our mindset right now moving forward both in college athletics slash basketball particular but also 
in a greater scope of our society is next day, next play. You know, how engaged can we be in exactly where we are? Because that's going to that's gonna help us trigger what's next by just staying, being where our feet are, so to speak. Let me leave you with one more Coach Wooden story. Love it. So at UCLA, 12 years, 1991 to 2003, I get fired in the spring after the Pac-10 tournament at that point. Uh, now it's the Pac-12. And it was inevitable. We had had a great run, but my last year, uh, we struggled at one point. We lost nine straight games, which is never a good experience when you're at UCLA under those banners and Coach Wooden sitting behind the bench. A couple weeks go by that spring. I'm not sure where I'm going to go. I don't know at this point that it's going to be a television opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I knew eventually I was going to get out to see Coach Wooden. This time it was, you know, swing by his house, apartment, and we went to Froman's Deli. Yeah. There were a couple of different restaurants in the rotation out there that we go to. And we sit down and I haven't seen him since the time I've been fired. And we hadn't spoken on the phone other than to set up a time to pick him up. We go out. I'll never forget. We sit down across from one another at the deli and uh, he orders some chicken noodle soup and he's breaking the premium crackers up into little pieces as he always does, you know, very meticulous in his crunching the crackers and opening the plastic and his hands, he had these fabulous hands and fingers. And I always marveled at them because I would think of what an interesting experience those hands have had and how many people they, they had touched. If hands could talk. Right. And the number of letters that he signed and the letters that he wrote to presidents as he pen palled with all of our presidents during his lifetime and received the Presidential Medal of Honor at one time, like the highest honor for a civilian from the president. So then he worked his iced tea, putting a little sugar in the iced tea and picking up that spoon, the long spoon and stirring it just so. And a little small talk, couple exchanges. How are your parents? And after the pleasantries are exchanged, he says, Steve. And he leans up a little bit kind of towards me. I'm going to tell you something. And I hope you don't take this the wrong way. <laughs> and now my mind starts to race right there. I'm like, oh, no, what did I do wrong? Because, you know, basically, every time you meet with Coach Wooden, he's the Pope. And we're just young cardinals moving through the Vatican. No uh, but there's only one Pope. And so I'm like, I thought I was pretty careful down the stretch, you know, taking the high road, giving thanks in my final season at UCLA, but I don't want to get on the bad side of Coach Wooden here. Right. The Boilermaker ties and didn't want to embarrass him in any way. So there's this pause. I hope you don't take this the wrong way. And then he says, and only a former UCLA head coach, which of course I got the pink slip, so I'm now a former head coach as he is. And he says, only a former head coach can fully appreciate what I'm about to tell you. Then he's got the pause. He he has the twinkle in the blue eyes. At this point, he's probably 92, 93. And then he says, after the pause, you're much better off. (laughs) So, and just what you did, I did at, at first. I had to think about it. it's like a one, one thousand, two, one thousand. Then I started to chuckle, and it's fabulous. And you talk about leadership, oh, and Martin. one of one of the key traits of leadership is knowing what to say and when to say it, and knowing your audience, right? Knowing who you're working with, and a number of elements there. As the years have gone by, similar to Brent, stay interested. This 
was so powerful because one, I didn't know that I was going to end up in television, a return to coaching in St. John's and another return to television. Mm-hmm. He knew after being at UCLA from 26 years old to 38 years old, that my life was just starting. And I naturally at that point, after you're fired, I didn't yeah. have that viewer perspective of life experience that yeah. Coach Wooden had. And obviously seeing all the coaches prior to me fired and all the coaches after me since fired, he's seen it not in a vacuum as I'm experiencing it, but instead with this wonderful wide-angle lens. Horizontal view, the whole horizon. The whole horizon. And then he's also providing encouragement because just by saying you're much better off, what's implied there is great things are coming, which I didn't know. It was going to be ABC, SPN, and working with Brent, and all these wonderful things that have happened since. And the time in the off-season to be with my mother and father before they Mm -hmm. passed and to be able to travel, pursue other interests, develop a second career in in sports TV and all these other things, doing a show like this with you. Uh, He could see those things, even if they weren't specific. He knew that good things were ahead. And so there's a little bit of a profit there. He's also providing encouragement. And that's an example when we talk about leadership, authenticity, wow, and being able to say the right thing at the right time. And then after the good chuckle, we moved on and had some interesting talks about things other than basketball, which is always the case uh, when his coach would be. Um, <laughs> Felt lighter after it was over. Oh, completely liberated. And it wasn't, yeah. you know, for a couple more months before the ESPN thing came together, but in the meantime, I also circled back to them at another juncture where I almost returned to coaching at North Carolina State just a couple of years later in 2006. Mm-hmm. And I called him on that one. We had a long phone conversation. And again, he delivered not by telling me what to do, but by helping me think and ask myself questions. And of course, he was asking me questions. Yeah. At that point, for whatever reason, I decided to stay. And the real reason was... Because he walked me through without telling me what to do, but just through his questions. Are you enjoying yourself? Yes. Are you getting better at what you do? And I'd say, well, you know, this is Coach Wooden. So I'd say, well, I think I'm getting better. He said, you're much better. I watched your first year. You struggled. You weren't sure when to get in and when to get out, when to use your sense of humor. And your second year, you were, you were much improved, much like a freshman to a sophomore year. You're beginning to understand the mechanics and the fundamentals of broadcasting. And this past year, which is my third year at that point, you were much better. So he said, and he goes, and here's why that's important. If you're not getting better, then someone will be nipping on your heels and you'll be out of work in broadcast. So you have to keep improving and you're improving. You know? He said, what, what career? broadcasting or coaching do you think is better for family i said well you know probably broadcasting he goes i think so too and then this was a fabulous one he says when you were ucla and you were fired who came along and gave you an opportunity who extended the olive branch for you when you were in that low point that shattered point in your coaching career i said well actually it was ESPN. He goes, yeah, it was ESPN. He goes, and now you have an opportunity at North Carolina State. After three years in TV, they find you attractive and they want to bring you to North Carolina State. And that's very flattering. That's a great opportunity. But ESPN is coming back with a new contract. Yeah. Said, yeah, yeah, they are. He goes, oh, that's important because that means ESPN was there when you were down and out at a shatter point. And now that you're back on your feet, North Carolina State's interested in having you as their head coach. ESPN's still there. 
He goes, so it's rare in life to have someone there for you when you're down and out and when you're yeah. on your feet. He goes, and UCLA didn't do that. He goes, you had one bad season. You were fired. They weren't there for you during that bad season or after that bad season. He goes, but ESPN is. So wow. that's important too because loyalty. People were there for you during thick and thin. That's really important to consider. So, I mean, I hung up that phone. I called ESPN first to let them know that I'm coming back. And then I called no North Carolina State to let them know I'm moving on, even though I was flattered and it was a great opportunity. I gave it a lot of thought and consideration. And then in 2010, just matter of fact, Coach Wooden passed in June, early June, just a couple months after I had taken the St. John's yeah. job. But we talked through that. And for me, it was the right time. I felt recharged, Big East, New York City, great no tradition and heritage, Madison Square Garden. I sprinted across that finish line into the arms of uh, St. John's for, for another running coaching. So he wasn't around in 2015 when I ended up back in television. But he is there because of all the years of listening. And he really did a deep dive at that intersection between deciding whether to go to back to coaching NC State or stadium. It was a deep dive in critical thinking right. and decision-making. He broke it down through the questions that he asked, which elicited certain responses, and then also allowed me to kind of think and see things because I'm too close to it through a different lens or prism. Yeah. And, uh, thankful that that's, again, back to master teacher and, mm -hmm. and looking at things in a broader way. Yeah. It's the... Uh Art gallery analogy you and I were talking about the other day. Uh, you know, you, you're looking at the picture of one side of the room, and then that mentor person walks in, and they just call you to the other side of the room, and all of a sudden the light, it's the same picture, but you know the light hits it a little different from where they're standing, and they wow. they point out a little leaf on a tree or something that feature in the picture that you couldn't see from the other side of the room. They're not telling you what to do, but they're just encouraging you to look at it differently or rereading a good book you reread a book at 20 30 40 50 60 the book itself in terms of the types the the words are in the same order but because yeah. your life has changed you bring more to that book in that personal experience with the text with the life. and and it's all based on your perspective of having lived life and so now you experience that book in a different way what's singular what's unique what's amplified what moves you is different than it was when you were 20 or 30 or 40 and that's again back to perspective you know yeah it's almost like the book you read the book the first time and then the second time the book is reading you it kind of turns the tables on you because it's a completely different read that second time around because mm -hmm. like you said you're different it informs and it's in such a different manner yeah yeah. Now, the beauty of it is, man, at the end of the day, from all these nuggets you shared, man, and from your mom and dad to Coach Wooden to Coach Katie to your own experiences, I mean, uh, I think the, to wrap this thing up, to share with everybody out there, wisdom never dies. There's a lot of things that kind of move on, but wisdom's probably one of the most timeless things out there, man. But How about Coach Katie as we wrap it up saying, life's a flicker and then it's over, guys. <laughs> right i mean that's one i carry with me it's basically being thankful and grateful for every second minute hour day right week month years decades uh, life's a flicker and then it's over guys and that might be tied to why we have to get the most out of this practice and to take advantage of the educational opportunity and competing to the best of your abilities because life's a flicker and then it's over and no that is, if he ever does another book, I've always encouraged him 
that he should use that hashtag it use it as the title (laughs) because he lived his life that way every game you know to him was so meaningful every practice every opportunity because he realized how fragile because it's also about how fragile the world is how tenuous our set of circumstances are that's kind of inherent in the human condition and so it's a flicker and then it's over so make the most of it because life is but a flicker yeah for sure man lab it's been a blast my brother i I enjoyed it i can't tell you enough how much it means and Again, thank you to the Cas Source group out of Charlotte, Eric Kasimov, John Prior. And this has been the second part of the Clutch Timeout series, a three-part mini-series. So if you're listening out there, you have now used two of your three timeouts. You got one timeout left, and we'll have another guest coming up here pretty soon. But again, Lab, stay safe out there in the Bay Area. Enjoy those walks. Big hug to you, man. Love you lots. Big Al, I love it. Love you. And thanks to the company allowing me to spend some time with you because you're a good company. All right, man. Sounds good. Take care. We'll see you out there next time, people. Much love. Stay safe. One of my favorite things about our Sportsypreneur content platform is the opportunity to chat with amazing people in and around the world of sports. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you want to connect more, hit us up on Instagram at sportsypreneur. Thank you for listening to this CadSource production, the Sports Epreneur podcast, the podcast where sports and entrepreneurship collide. Mm-hmm.